It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a quick take on a couple of big items of news today, starting with Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Hillary Clinton. I intend to do everything I can to make certain she will be the next president of the United States. That was in New Hampshire this morning. We'll also talk about President Obama's visit to Dallas this afternoon. And Donald Trump's vice presidential pick, who we should hear about any day now. He's campaigning with Indiana Governor Mike Pence, one possible pick, tonight. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. Now, Tam, you're not with us here in the studio in D.C. No, I am in a hot car in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, recording from the back seat. Because I was up here in New Hampshire to cover. (laughs) Don't just hang (laughs) out. Is anyone driving? Is it an Uber? (laughs) No? No, it's a rental car. But I'm here to cover the big endorsement. Bernie Sanders endorsing Hillary Clinton today in a high school gymnasium here in Portsmouth. I have come here today not to talk about the past, but to focus on the future. That future will be shaped more by what happens on November 8th in voting booths across our nation than by any other event in the world. So that was what Sanders said about the long, hard campaign between himself and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and and I have to say, in the gymnasium, in the room there, it was quite an interesting dynamic. Starting out, there was a lot of dissension. And there were the people chanting, Bernie, Bernie. And then the Hillary people would be like, oh, gosh, guess we should chant, too. And then they'd start chanting. And it was going back and forth. And it was very contentious. And And during Sanders' speech... When he endorsed Clinton, I am endorsing Hillary Clinton. A bunch of those very vocal supporters of his stood up and walked out in protest. But by the end of it, it you know most of that drama had subsided, and and there it really was a unity rally. Well, Tam, one of the things that a lot of people have been wondering is just how enthusiastic Bernie would be when he eventually got around to this day, especially after Elizabeth Warren has endorsed her very, very enthusiastically. So how do you how do you rank Sanders enthusiasm level? Gosh, I, I that's a that's a little hard to figure out. There there were immediately gifts created of Hillary Clinton smiling and waving and and Bernie Sanders sort of grimacing as he walked toward the lectern. Uh, But that was a standard Sanders grimace, not one that I saw any judgment in. Um, And he really did make a case. He used the word endorse. He was firm in, in supporting Clinton. Hillary Clinton understands that we must fix an economy in America that is rigged and that sends almost all of the new wealth and income to the top 1%. And in part, he had to be because he has supporters who do not believe that he really means it. And, you know, there's no mistaking the timing on this, Tam, obviously. I mean, the Democrats finally hammered out their platform uh, over the weekend in Orlando, and Sanders seemed to extract 
a bunch of things that he wanted out of this because a lot of people have been talking about how it's taken him so long to kind of come around, especially considering that in 2008, Hillary Clinton had endorsed Barack Obama just four days after the primary had ended. Tam, what, from a policy perspective, does Bernie Sanders get in the Democratic platform? Two major things are over the last week, Hillary Clinton has made announcements uh, both expanding her college affordability plan and also uh, some announcements on health care that move her closer to Sanders. Uh, Also, the, the party platform goes for a $15 minimum wage. It has strong language on climate change. The only thing in the party platform that Sanders didn't get was related to the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. And at today's rally, Hillary Clinton came out with very strong language against the TPP. Uh, One uh, Sanders supporter... She was really charged up, right? Yeah, she was super charged up about it. I I mean, she's been saying she opposes the the Trans-Pacific Partnership for some time, but... But the way she said it here was stronger than we've seen. And we're going to say no to attacks on working families and no to bad trade deals and unfair trade practices, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there were times in her remarks where it really sounded like she could have been saying what Bernie Sanders says. As Bernie and his supporters have argued so eloquently, we won't get anywhere unless we overhaul our campaign finance system. As Bernie will tell you, talk is cheap. We need to keep fighting to make sure everything we've stood for is real in the lives of people across America. As Bernie reminds us so powerfully, we owe it. To future generations to work together. Well, Tam, I'm wondering if if Bernie obviously got a lot of what he wanted, not every single thing. But I'm wondering what you think the impact of this is. Eighty five percent of Sanders supporters were already telling pollsters they were going to vote for her. Is he running to catch up with the parade or do you think this endorsement brings a lot of votes to Hillary Clinton that wouldn't be there otherwise. I have to say it it felt kind of anticlimactic at this point. Like it, you know, this has been such a long time in coming. We've seen this sort of dribble out, the slow movement of Hillary Clinton towards Sanders, Sanders slowly getting closer to saying the word endorse. And, you know, I did talk to one Sanders supporter who at some point during the rally after Sanders said he endorsed Clinton, he slapped a Hillary sticker on his chest and and grabbed one of those stronger together signs. And and he was really proud that he flipped the switch and he he's all in for Hillary Clinton. But I talked to other Sanders supporters and. And you get the sense that there is nothing Bernie Sanders could say to get them to support Hillary Clinton. And I asked him, like, you say that you will follow Bernie wherever Bernie leads you. But what if Bernie Sanders leads to Hillary Clinton, which clearly he has? And they said, well, we're going to go to the convention. We're going to protest outside. We're going to see what Bernie says because, like, maybe he could run as an independent. Maybe maybe he's just playing the game right now, but he's really going to continue to run. Uh, It's sort of remarkable to hear that on a day when he pretty unequivocally endorsed Hillary Clinton. You know, the thing that kind of stood out to me in this speech, though, is that this was not a speech by the same Sanders 
who was bitterly fighting against Clinton that entire time. You know, he'd admitted he'd lost, which he didn't seem like he was ever going to admit. He didn't quite say he lost fair and square, but he pretty much got there. Um, He said that she won and that he would do everything I can to make certain she would be the next president of the United States. This is not just Sanders saying we have to do everything to beat Donald Trump. This was Sanders saying we have to elect Hillary Clinton. And that is the definition of endorsement when finally the loser chokes out the words that he's been trying to avoid saying for weeks and weeks. And even he though did he did it today. Even though he only said the word endorse once. He actually said endorsing. He said it once. But he did say Hillary Clinton's name 20 times. I went and looked back at the transcript and I added them up. He said her name 20 times. And he did rattle off a host of issues where they agreed. Uh, and, you know, these are things that they disagreed on by degree, he tried to point out, which I take it most of his supporters bought, but some of the more vocal ones didn't. So, Mara, how much does this actually help Clinton then, do you think? I think it helps Clinton because you have to have a unified party. And um, if Bernie Sanders was holding out even longer or refusing to endorse her, that would be a huge story and it would be distracting from the task at hand, which is beating Donald Trump. I think it's very, very important. What I am not clear on is how many of his supporters will vote for her now that he's endorsed that wouldn't have voted for her if he hadn't. In other words, 85 percent of Bernie Sanders' supporters already were telling pollsters before today that they were going to vote for her. Domenico, the the area where Clinton has had the most trouble, where Sanders had the most strength, was young voters. Where where do they fall in this? Yeah, it was pretty clear in this campaign who was going to you know line up with who, right? I mean, young, especially white liberal voters were on Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign overwhelmingly. I mean, he was winning by whopping margins, margins Barack Obama didn't win by against Hillary, Hillary Clinton. And there was an uh, Associated Press poll that came out today that showed Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump 38 to 17 with voters under 30, which sounds like a big margin, but is not very good for a Democratic candidate. On the flip side of that, Bernie Sanders was winning over Trump with those same young voters 61 to 16. So you see where the big gap is among those voters. And it's It's an honesty and trustworthy issue because Sanders has shown in this campaign that she's part of the corporate left, uh, part of the mainstream Wall Street kind of candidate. But what's interesting about that 38 to 17 percent number is – She's not losing them. It's not like to they're Donald going to Trump. Trump. Right. <laughs> they're just not supporting her, which means either she has room to grow. But that's the whole trick of reassembling the Obama coalition. You got to get these people right. out to well, vote. They're not going to come out and vote for Trump, but she has to get them out to vote. Yeah, we should also remember these are a lot of people who never voted for Barack Obama. I mean, if you're 29 years old and you know in 2008, these eight years ago, you know maybe they had voted, but you've got a, that whole group under that age bracket, you know. Know, who never who, who this is the first time they're going to vote and that's why what bernie sanders does next is really important yeah. does he work hard to get those young people to turn out to see he say it's really important you do this or did he just come out and do the thing he had to do and then go home well we'll see if they wind up coming back around but what do you guys think do you think bernie sanders it's going to be Hillary Clinton's VP, as I say, trying not to laugh too you hard. You can't even keep a straight face. I can tell that remotely. Uh, yeah, my face is not screwed on straight right now. Tam, what do you think? No, no. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, but why not, right? We're talking about this problem of the fact that, you know, these young voters have to go over to Hillary Clinton. Why Why wouldn't she, Mara, pick someone like, like Bernie? I mean, even Elizabeth Warren, let's say. Elizabeth Warren, I think, is different. Bernie Sanders... 
um, doesn't bring her what she needs. He do- she doesn't bring her a swing state. He doesn't have the breadth and the even the kind of modernity in his policy proposals. He's a man of the old left. Now, he did something extraordinary, but it is unclear whether he's the only route to getting those young voters out. Well, so while we're on the topic of the Veep stakes, let's just go all in. Uh, Donald Trump is campaigning in Indiana tonight with the state's governor, Mike Pence. Pence is one possible pick for Trump's VP. And we are supposed to hear about the the choice sometime this week. Um, Mara, who's on this list? The short list seems to be for Trump. Mike Pence, who is, as you mentioned, campaigning with him tonight, governor of Indiana, very popular with Christian conservatives. Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, but also an insurgent in his own right. And Chris Christie, who's been the most prominent establishment supporter of Donald Trump. And I would put them in that order, although I have no inside knowledge. And Trump has also been saying that maybe there are a couple of others, possibly generals or wild cards of some kind. Any idea? Well, we had a general audition, in a way, for the position on Sunday. Retired Lieutenant General Mike Flynn went on the Sunday shows and revealed that he was pro-choice and immediately got a lot of blowback from pro-life groups in the Republican Party who said that disqualifies him. Mike Pence would be the typical, traditional pick for someone like Donald Trump who needs to unify the party and shore up his support with certain parts of the coalition. Newt Gingrich would be a reinforcement of Trump's own brand. It's hard for me to imagine why Trump needs to reinforce his brand, but Newt would do that. He's also a bombastic, larger-than-life figure who's been an insurgent. But you know, And who King- ran for president in 2012. Yes, who ran for president. But Gingrich does bring some policy heft. Oh, no and doubt. That that's no something doubt. that if there are Republicans on Capitol Hill who are wondering whether or not Trump will actually be able to understand the legislative process. Here's Newt Gingrich who can sort of, you know, show you the ropes, figure it out for you. Uh, Christie, you know, I think is is a difficult choice I, I, because he's upset the conservative base on a host of issues. He's seen as more moderate. And you're also doubling down on that kind of northeastern uh, brash brand. And I'll say this, in a lot of polling, when Chris Christie was getting a lot of buzz in 2013, even before the Bridgegate scandal, the only group that he was popular with were Republicans in the Northeast. Everywhere else, his favorability rating was upside down. They're not enough Republicans in the Northeast. No. (laughs) And I was covering a Hillary Clinton rally in New Jersey about a week ago, and Chris Christie got louder boos than Donald Trump when his name was mentioned. He is deeply unpopular in his home state. Yep. All right, let's shift gears here and and listen to a bit of President Obama's speech at an interfaith prayer service in Dallas today, following last week's killing of five police officers there. This was President Obama as consoler-in-chief, if you will. It's a role that he has played many times for many different reasons during his presidency. Um, And he memorialized each of the officers with really personal, heartbreaking stories about their lives and their families and said they all answered the call to service. Lauren Aarons, he answered that call. So did his wife, Katrina not only because she was the spouse of a police officer, but because she's a detective on the force. Michael Kroll answered that call. His mother said he knew the dangers of the job, but he never shied away from his duty. Michael Smith answered that call. 
in the Army, and over almost 30 years working for the Dallas Police Association. Patrick Zamaripa, he answered that call. Just 32, a former altar boy who served in the Navy and dreamed of being a cop. Brent Thompson answered that call. He served his country as a Marine. Then he went on to talk about how hard it was for the country to grapple with Dallas on the heels of the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Those are the two black men killed by police in Baton Rouge and St. Paul earlier last week. We see all this, and it's hard not to think sometimes that the center won't hold and that things might get worse. I understand. I understand how Americans are feeling. But Dallas, I'm here to say we must reject such despair. I'm here to insist that we are not as divided as we seem. And I know that because I know America. I know how far we've come against impossible odds. This is a hard day to be optimistic. It's a hard week to be optimistic, but that's what the president was today. That's really what struck me about the speech. He talked about, as he said, we're not as divided as people say we are, and that this is the America I know where protesters and the police are really on the same side against people who would commit violence. The thing that's fascinating about President Obama having to do this, and this is the 11th time he's actually had to go to a state and, you know, be at the scene of a tragedy and make a speech like this. You know, this was probably his biggest race speech since his uh, his speech in Philadelphia in 2008. And, and you're saying this is a speech about race, about... Um, the, the things that divide us and, and bring us together. Yeah, I mean, I think that this president, like in that speech in 2008, was trying to do what he says is the most important thing, which is empathy and being able to walk in someone else's shoes. And that 2008 speech saved his candidacy after uh, seeing uh, the images of uh, Jeremiah Wright, who was the pastor at his church, with those controversial clips that made their way around cable news and really almost torpedoed his candidacy before he gave this unifying speech, hearkening back to his 2004 address about there being no red America, no blue America, only the United States of America. Now, it's it's filtered through a different lens eight years later into his presidency because for some people, they'll shut this off. Instead of hearing a hopeful message, they'll say, yeah, yeah, there's that, but what else? What have you done for us? And what, what has really changed or what's really happened? And today, President Obama seemed conscious of that. He talked about words not being enough and admitted that his own words have been inadequate. I've seen how inadequate words can be in bringing about lasting change. I've seen how, how inadequate my own words have been. And so I'm reminded of a passage in John's Gospel. Let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If we're to sustain the unity we need to get through these difficult times, if we are to honor 
these five outstanding officers who we lost, then we will need to act on the truths that we know. He said, we know it's true there is still prejudice in America. America, we know that bias remains. We know it. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or of Middle Eastern descent, we have all seen this bigotry in our own lives at some point. We've heard it at times in our own homes. If we're honest, perhaps we've heard prejudice in our own heads and felt it in our own hearts. We know that. He said we also know it's true that we ask too much of the police and too little of ourselves. As a society, we choose to underinvest in decent schools. We allow poverty to fester so that entire neighborhoods offer no prospect for gainful employment. We refuse to fund drug treatment and mental health programs. We flood communities with so many guns that it is easier for a teenager to buy a Glock than get his hands on a computer or even a book. And then we tell the police, you're a social worker, you're the parent, you're the teacher, you're the drug counselor. So my question, guys, is, is this too soon? Is, is this memorial service the right venue for this kind of, of sort of sweeping policy and politics speech? Yeah, I was kind of wondering a similar kind of thing because I'm, I'm listening to this speech and then you realize what the place is. And Mara, I wonder about this idea of – I keep hearing this a lot, right? That like now's not a time for politics. Now's a time for thoughts and prayers. And I wonder about like the – that how controversial those two things have become, these opposing ideas, because Obama runs through this list of policy prescriptions out of a, a place of frustration, really. Is that the right thing to do? Is that why he's gotten to this point? How do you weigh that? I don't know if it's the right thing to do. I'm sure there'll be a debate about that. But the fact is that this whole week, people have been talking about race and policy and community policing and Black Lives Matter and the rhetoric used on both sides. I don't think you can separate the two. The killing of five police officers in Dallas was a political act of violence. And I think that the president just decided to talk about what everyone else was talking about this week. And yes, it was a memorial service. And he could have confined his remarks to scripture and to the hurt that that community is feeling. But they have to come together across racial lines, and race is a highly politicized thing in America. I think that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure the president will be criticized for this, but he clearly made a decision that this was the right moment to talk about these things. Well, I think it makes sense in the way that if you understand him and the uh – what's piled up underneath his feet, I think. I think early on in his presidency, and certainly as he went through a lot of these tragedies and speeches that he's made on tragedy, he didn't necessarily go immediately to policy prescriptions. And then you saw something change after Sandy Hook, where he said, people say we shouldn't talk about politics, but now we actually should talk about politics. And politics has sort of taken on this dirty 
connotation when really politics is about getting stuff done for people. But when you hear people say this shouldn't be a day about politics, that certainly has a negative connotation. Yes. And that's different than saying this shows you why we should elect Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's (laughs) politics. Politics is the way societies solve their problems in a nonviolent way. Right. But this idea of politics and policy and the kind of tone that people should take, um, I I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And it's going to be very different with whoever the next president is. Because can you imagine, you have to imagine now, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, whenever there's the tragedy in their term, what they're going to sound like, look like, say, when they go to whatever town they have to go to. Yeah. And on that note, that's it for today. We'll be back on Thursday with our weekly roundup of political news. You can find us on Twitter or also connect with us on the NPR Politics Facebook page. We've heard from a few of you that Twitter isn't your thing, but you're on Facebook and you can talk to us there, too. And as always, there's more coverage on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Eliasson, national political correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 